0: Hello and welcome to our latest podcast from the International Employment Team at Stevenson Harwood. I'm Anne Preetham, I'm a partner in the team and I'm joined today by Elspeth Hunt, who's an associate. Welcome, Elspeth. Thanks, Anne. Today we're going to be discussing neurodiversity and the workplace. Recent reports have indicated that there's been a dramatic increase in the number of employment tribunal claims which reference disability discrimination as a result of a neurodiverse condition. We think this is a trend we're likely to see continue, so it's important for employers to know about what they should be doing in this area. Let's get started by clarifying what we mean by neurodiversity. Neurodiversity refers to a range of differences in individual brain function and behavioural traits. Whereas the majority of the population are so-called neurotypical, i.e. their brain functions and processes information in the way that is typically expected, Around one in seven people in the UK are thought to be neurodivergent, meaning that the brain functions, learns, and processes information differently. Elspeth, can you run us through a number of conditions that fall within the neurodivergent spectrum?
1: Yeah, of course. Neurodivergent conditions include ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. This is a condition that affects people's behaviour. People with ADHD may have high levels of spontaneity, courage, and empathy, they can hyperfocus on certain tasks, may be inventive thinkers and open to new experiences. There's dyslexia. Dyslexia is usually characterized by a difficulty in learning to read or interpret words, letters and other symbols. People with dyslexia can often perceive certain kinds of visual information better than those without the condition, and are often creative. Autism is a developmental disorder, and there is a large spectrum of how people may be affected. It is typically characterised by difficulty in social interaction and communication and by restricted or repetitive patterns of thought and behaviour. Many individuals with autism pay attention to complex details, have good memories and show certain speciality skills. They can memorise and learn information quickly and have a logical and methodical thinking approach. Dyspraxia is an impairment of the organisation and planning of movement. Dyspraxia not only affects the planning of movement and how to execute movement, but also causes difficulty with perception, language, memory, processing and judgment. Many people with dyspraxia have strong problem-solving skills and a great sense of empathy and understanding for others. Dyscalculia is a specific and persistent difficulty in understanding numbers. Those with this condition often have a love for words and are often exceptional at reading and writing. Many have creative and artistic skills intuitive thinking, and great organisational skills. So,
0: as we can tell from the way that Elspeth has described those conditions, there are some real strengths that people with neurodivergent conditions can bring to the workplace. Given the spectrum of conditions, many neurodiverse employees may be considered for the purposes of the Equality Act 2010 to have a disability, even though they may not see themselves as such. The definition of the disability under the Act refers to physical or mental impairment, which has a substantial and long-term adverse effect on an individual's ability to carry out normal day-to-day activities. Whether an individual is considered disabled under the Act will be fact-specific. In other words, it looks specifically at the individual and their condition on a case-by-case basis. Thanks, Anne. If it's a case that an employee with a neurodiverse condition
1: is considered disabled, the employer will then have a duty to make reasonable adjustments. The duty to make reasonable adjustments is unique to the protected characteristic of disability. Where the duty arises, the employer must effectively treat the disabled person more favourably than others in an attempt to reduce or remove that individual's disadvantage. A failure to make a reasonable adjustment amounts to discrimination under the Equality Act 2010.
0: That's right, and there's also some interesting case law in the area. So in an employment tribunal case called Sherborne and N Power Limited. An employee who had autism was required to work in an open plan setting and had a busy walkway behind him. That caused him to feel overwhelmed and distracted, so he later became distressed with changes in his work environment and sadly had a breakdown. The employee's line manager made very little effort to understand what autism meant and the employer's occupational health team recommended adjustments. But the manager claimed she couldn't implement the proposed adjustments because of inadequate training. Within three weeks of the occupational health assessment, she invoked a capability procedure, and the employee was eventually dismissed. He succeeded in claims for indirect disability discrimination and failure to make reasonable adjustments, and an employment tribunal found that there had been continuous management failure, as they termed it, to understand the employee's disability, and a failure to implement reasonable adjustments, including those recommended by the employer's own occupational health team. But aside from the duty to make reasonable adjustments, what other protections are afforded to a neurodivergent individual who's considered disabled in accordance with the Act?
1: Well, there are a number of things that they'll be protected from. For example, direct discrimination, which is treating someone worse because of their disability. For example, refusing to remote an employee because of their dyslexia. They will also be protected from indirect discrimination, which means implementing rules or policies that whilst they may appear neutral, are more detrimental to those who are disabled. An example of this is a policy of hot-desking. While this applies to everyone, it may put an individual with autism at a disadvantage if they find change and distraction challenging. Indirect discrimination can be objectively justified if the employer can show it was a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. The individual can also be protected from associative discrimination which means treating someone unfairly because either someone they know or someone they are associated with has a certain protected characteristic under the Equality Act 2010. For example, if an employee's child has dyspraxia and her employer treats her unfairly because of this, she may claim associative discrimination on the grounds of her child's condition. They may also have protection from discrimination arising from a disability. This can occur when an employer treats an individual unfavourably because of something arising in consequence of their disability. An example of this is if an employee with ADHD needs to take frequent breaks to have a walk and expend some energy and the employer then puts them on a disability process because they are away from their desk too often. They would be discriminated against them for those frequent breaks which is something that arises from their disability. There is finally perceptive discrimination This is an interesting one, and it refers to treating an individual unfairly because it's believed they have a certain protected characteristic, e.g. a disability, even though they do not. So if an employer treats an employee unfairly because they believe he is dyslexic, when in fact he is not, he would still be protected under the Equality Act. A neurodivergent employee who is deemed disabled is also protected against victimisation or harassment as a result of their disability.
0: So as well as looking at the conditions which are protected, it's also worth noting that the Equality Act provides protection for a wide range of individuals, including job applicants, before they even come into your employment. And this is really important when looking at your recruitment practices. Conventional recruitment interviews may be challenging for neurodiverse individuals. In particular, those with autism may find it difficult to answer open-ended questions, make eye contact, or interpret voice tones and facial expressions all key indicators that we tend to use in conventional interviewing. Some businesses are seeking out cognitive diversity and focusing on a fairer process for neurodiverse individuals. For example, adjusting their recruitment process by replacing in-person interviews with performance-based tasks, like analysing a set of data or producing a report in small groups. Some others are providing training for managers who carry out interviews on the common challenges shared by neurodiverse individuals, such as difficulty in interpreting nonverbal prompts, altering the physical layout of office space to minimise high volumes of noise and lighting, as well as other sensory stimuli. There are several
1: steps businesses can take to provide greater equality for neurodiverse individuals in the recruitment process. Some of these steps include implementing a neurodiversity policy, which allows for adjustments in the recruitment processes, Such adjustments might include allowing for an interview process that can be conducted over a longer period of time with more breaks. They could also provide for alternative assessments with a focus on performance-based tasks as opposed to one-on-one interviews. You could also avoid using psychometric tests and provide job applicants with the option to safely disclose their condition at various stages in the recruitment process. Such steps might also include delivering training to recruitment managers and interviewers on neurodiverse conditions and on making adjustments to the recruitment process, for example how to phrase questions, allowing for breaks and how to avoid unconscious bias against unconventional behaviour. Another step might include using clear and concise job descriptions with a breakdown of responsibilities and tasks involved. These job descriptions should also allow for a wider range of skills at the expense of generalist competency
0: requirements. There's been a very interesting case involving a neurodiverse job applicant in Government Legal Services and Brookers, it's a 2017 case. In this case, the employer required a job applicant with Asperger's Syndrome to sit a multiple choice test. The Employment Appeal Tribunal upheld the Tribunal's decision that the multiple choice test was an unjustified provision, criterion or practice, which amounted to unlawful disability discrimination. It decided that the employer had also breached its duty to make reasonable adjustments by failing to adapt the format of the test to accommodate this job applicant. Businesses who take steps to be inclusive and adjust processes will not only be complying with their legal duties to make reasonable adjustments for their disabled job applicants, but will also reap the commercial benefit of doing so in opening up new talent pools and encouraging diversity in the workforce. It may be that a job applicant is up front
1: at disclosing their disability, but they may also hide it. And that goes not only for job applicants, but also for employees too. And what about the tricky situations where an employee
0: doesn't disclose their disability to their employer? That's a really good question, Elspeth. It's one we're asked a lot by our clients. The issue of knowledge is really important. An employer cannot be liable for direct disability discrimination, discrimination arising from disability or failure to make reasonable adjustments unless it knew or should have known about the employee's disability. So when may it be held that an employer should have known? Well, the Equality and Human Rights Commission Code is relatively helpful in this regard, but it does set a high bar for employers. And what it says is that, and a quote, an employer must do all they can reasonably be expected to do to find out if a worker has a disability. That's pretty wide-ranging, but it also makes some additional points. Employers should consider whether a worker has a disability even where one has not been formally disclosed, as, for example, not all workers who meet the definition of disability would necessarily think of themselves as a disabled person. When making inquiries about disability, employers should consider issues of dignity and privacy and ensure that personal information is dealt with confidentially. And, of course, they also need to be very careful from a data protection perspective. If an employer's employee, such as an occupational health advisor or a personnel officer, or a manager, knows in that capacity of an employee's, applicants or potential applicants disability, the employer will not usually be able to claim that they do not know of the disability. However, there is some controversy around the role of occupational health advisors, and the case of Hartman is key in this. In that case, an applicant told an occupational health advisor of their disability, but did not disclose the information to the employer, and the employer was deemed not to have known about the disability. There is a lot of difficulty around the situation of occupational health advisors to whom information is imparted in confidence, and there are question marks about whether they are acting in that capacity as an agent or as part of the employer, and this area of law remains unsettled. As a practical tip, you should be clear in your processes and inform applicants when their information will be passed on to you as an employer, or whether their information will effectively stop with an occupational health advisor, or will stop at a pre-employment medical stage. So, what about the employer's knowledge or lack thereof of indirect disability discrimination claims? An employer does not have to know about the employee's disability in order to indirectly discriminate. An employee merely has to show that the disadvantage they and others with their disability experience flows from the practice, criteria, or policy that the employer has put in place. I'm sure employers will be pleased to be reminded that they can potentially justify indirect discrimination. If that policy, criterion, or practice is a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. So, from everything we've said so
1: far, it's clear that neurodiversity is an important topic for employers. In terms of practical steps, can you give us some ideas of what employers could do?
0: So, Elspeth, I would say that raising awareness and providing training are really key. Training up workforces and line managers about neurodiversity so they understand more about the conditions and don't leap to assumptions is always the best way to support your colleagues. A lot of the case law in this area really comes down to a simple lack of understanding of the conditions and therefore a lack of support and adjustments offered by line managers. Technology can also assist in this area. Increasingly, we're seeing software on the market which assists neurodivergent individuals to be a more integrated part of the workforce. For example, software which allows text to be read aloud helps people to listen to it if they find reading text in any quantity more challenging. Also try thinking about the layout and functions of your workplace. Do you designate certain quiet areas for those who are easily distracted so they have somewhere they can focus? And consider too if neurodivergent employees could have permanent desks rather than being forced a hot desk. Crucially, of course, listen to your neurodivergent employees, just as you would all your employees, as to how they can be supported in the workplace and implement their requests where you can. Managers should take extra care during performance management processes and adapt them as necessary. So, thinking of individuals with autism, managers should try to be to the point, communicate clearly without ambiguity. For dyslexic individuals, think about alternative ways of communicating outcomes other than in writing. And it may be appropriate for employers also to consider occupational health referrals, provided that's done sensitivity. This can often be the best way for individuals to be supported. So lots of practical things for all employers to think about.
1: Thanks, Anne. That's really helpful. And that brings us to the end of today's podcast. If you have any questions on this or any other employment law topics, please do get in touch with me or Anne or your usual Stevenson-Harwood contact. A reminder that all of our podcasts and e-alerts can be found on our new employment law hub, www.employmentlawweb.com. Thanks again to all of our listeners for tuning into today's podcast.